Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. Hello everybody, my name is Rob Dalrymple. I want to welcome you to my podcast in the book of Revelation. In this series of podcasts, we're going to look at the book of Revelation from chapters 1 through 22. What did John say? How would John's readers have understood what he said? And what does it mean for us today? After we survey the 22 chapters in the book of Revelation, we'll then record some more podcasts that will examine some of the more popular topics. What about the beast and the Antichrist and the rapture and some of the more popular topics? For those of you who are interested, I encourage you to get a copy of my book, Follow the Lamb. It's a guide on how to read, understand, and apply the book of Revelation. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast by downloading the Podbean app on your smartphone and following the Determined Truth podcast. For now, I hope you sit back and enjoy our study of the book of Revelation. Today's podcast brings us to Revelation chapter 11. In chapter 10, John had uh, con- the chapter concluded with John being told that he must prophesy again. Uh, again probably refers to the fact that chapters 2 and 3 was John's previous prophetic activity, where he tells the churches, the seven churches, what he had seen, preparing them for the role that they're to play in what we might call the last days. Chapter 11, then, contains John's prophetic activity to the nations and the church's prophetic witness to them. Revelation chapter 11 takes us to the heart of the book of Revelation. This is the key chapter. The the entire narrative is building up to this particular point. What's going to transpire in chapters 12 through and following are just going to give us more details and a further elaboration as to what's going on in chapter 11. John was told to eat the scroll at the end of chapter 10 and to digest it and then to go prophesy. The contents of the scroll then... Uh, is the content of what John's about to prophesy. And it likely includes at least Revelation chapters 11, 1 through 13. Now, some scholars will say that the contents of the scroll go on to chapters 12 and following. Uh, I would say that at least chapters 1 through 13, chapter 11, verses 1 through 13 is the contents of the scroll. Chapter 11, verse 1 begins, And there was given me a measuring rod, like a staff. And someone said, Rise, measure the temple of God and the altar, and those who worship in it, and leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it. For it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for forty-two months. I will grant authority to my two witnesses. They will prophesy for twelve hundred and sixty days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone desires to harm them, fire proceeds out of their mouths and devours their enemies. If anyone would desire to harm them, in this manner he must be killed. These have the power to shut up the sky, in order that rain may not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood, and to smite the earth with every plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them, and overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt, where also the Lord was crucified. And those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look upon their dead bodies for three and a half days and they will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. Those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry, and they'll send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. After the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who were beholding him, them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here! And they went up into heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. And in that hour there was a great earthquake, And a tenth of the city fell, and seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake. And the rest were terrified, and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming soon. John is told at the beginning of the passage to go and measure the temple of God. 
perhaps the best way, a, a good way of translating is this, is he's told to measure the temple of God, both the altar and the worshipers there. In other words, the two elements of the temple that John is to measure is both the altar and those who worship in it. Now, the altar perhaps uh, uh, relates to the place where the, the people of God who have been martyred is. We've seen several times now that the souls underneath the altar are crying out, How long, O God? How long, O Lord? The rest, then, are those who worship in it. And maybe that's the rest of the saints, those who are living, those who are still alive, those who are still performing their prophetic activity. Now, it's important to note that measure, as I mentioned last time, indicates the, the, uh, the divine presence of God and the protection of that which is measured. It establishes the boundaries of space or an activity. We see Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48 that God measures the temple, and it's, uh, 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 there's an angel measuring the temple, and it signifies the, the protection of the temple itself. In Zechariah chapter 1, uh, the city of Jerusalem is measured. Well, it's supposed to be measured, but the city extends beyond uh, the jurisdiction of, uh, and the boundaries of the, of the current city. Measuring then represents the security of the city. We'll see it again in Revelation 21, verses 15 through 17. Perhaps then the measuring of God's people uh, here parallels the sealing of God's people in chapter 7. Now, the reason why that might be a very strong connection is this. Uh, in chapter 7, we had an interlude, uh, a break, a pause. After the sixth seal and before the seventh seal, chapter 7 introduced us to a pause which describes God's people. Now, chapter 10, 1 through eleven thirteen, also is a pause an interruption, a hesitation between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. So then in the same way that we had the first six seals, a pause describing God's people, and then the seventh seal, so we also have now here the first six trumpets, and then a pause describing God's people, and then the seventh trumpet, which will occur in chapter 11, verse 15. If that's the case then, the people of God in chapter 7 were sealed, divinely protected by God. And indeed, that makes sense, and that parallels here with the measuring of God's people. Now, someone might say, well, uh, Rob, in the book of Revelation, John's measuring uh, the temple of God and not God's people. Well, what we must understand is the fact that the temple of God throughout the New Testament always refers to God's people or the church. It could also refer to the body of Jesus himself, uh, but 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16, you are the temple of God. Ephesians 2, 21 and 22, 1 Peter 2, 5, John chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, Jesus says, I am the temple of God, referring, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. But the temple he was speaking of was his body. So every use of temple in the book of Revelation also means either the present heavenly temple or God's presence with believers in the future age. So this idea is reinforced as well by the fact that Christians are referred to as priests, and priest's primary duty was to serve in the temple. The altar then, as I mentioned a moment ago, is uh, the, uh, probably located in the holy place, located in the temple. And it probably is indeed to be identified with the place where the souls of those who have been martyred are under the altar of God in chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. The worshippers then would also be priests. Remember, only priests were permitted in this area of the temple. And if the priests are indeed a reference to God's people, as it is in chapter 1 as well as chapter 5, uh, what then does it mean when it says that the don't measure the outer court? Of course, if you're not going to measure the outer court, that means it's not divinely protected. In order to fully grasp the meaning here, perhaps it's important to be reminded of the fact that the temple construction itself 
uh, was set up in such a way that the closer and closer you got to the holy place, the closer and closer you got to the heavenly realm, so the heavenly reality, the place of God's presence. Remember, heavenly reality doesn't mean some spiritual place separate and devoid from uh, the physical world that we, as we know it, as though if I travel through space and time long enough, eventually I'm going to get to some heavenly location. Heaven instead represents the place of God's presence. But as you entered into the temple, the closer and closer you got to the holy place, or the most holy place, or the holy of holies, the closer we got to the presence of God. If the outer court, then, is what's not measured and therefore not divinely protected, it might refer to the physical world itself. The idea, then, would be this. God's people are protected. We have the seal of God in our foreheads. Uh, we're divinely protected by God. But that doesn't mean that we're not subject to physical harm. Uh, the spiritually protected means our salvation. Whatever you want to refer to that is, uh, it's, it's protected by God. God's hand is on us and, and is guiding us. We're going to enjoy God's divine protection. Now, the purpose of this divine protection, however, is so that we may accomplish God's purpose of witnessing for us. But you have to remember that throughout the book of Revelation, as well as the New Testament, the very act of bearing witness for God is indeed the reason why we suffer. So even though we're protected by God and our salvation is secure in Christ, we're protected by God so that we might bear witness for Christ. But that bearing witness for Christ will indeed result in persecution and suffering. So Christians are indeed going to be susceptible to harm and suffering. Of course, it says in verse 7 of this passage that when we finish our testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. Now it says here that the outer court is not going to be protected because it will be trampled underfoot for 42 months. Now, we're going to have to pay attention to the word trampling or tread underfoot here. It'll come back into play in chapter 14 as well. But trampling, of course, is based on the priestly suffering of Jesus. The holy city throughout the book of Revelation, by the way, is a reference to the new Jerusalem, the eternal dwelling place of the righteous. So the conclusion then would be here, the trampling of the holy city is the persecuting of the church. Now note, by the way, the holy city cannot just be something aloof or aloft or something futuristic only. Because if it's futuristic only, the holy city in the New Jerusalem, uh, is there's only the righteous that are in it. There are no wicked in it, there, and therefore there's no trampling of the holy city. But if the holy city refers to a present reality as well, then it indeed indicates the persecution of the church. And it says that they'll be persecuted for 42 months in verse 2, and then it says 1260 days in verse 3. This is the time frame of tribulation for the righteous of God's people throughout the entire scriptures. Jewish under, uh, interpretation understood 42 months or 1,260 days. It's actually 1,290 days and 1,335 days in Daniel chapter 12. Uh, but Jewish interpretation understood this as a general time frame of trial for God's believers. The designation of three and a half years comes from the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 25, it says that he will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One, He'll, he will intend to make alterations in the times and in the laws, and they'll be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Now what's significant is that this is the first designation of this time frame in all in the scriptures. And the very first time it's referenced here in Daniel 7.25, it says a time, times, and half a time. The second word there, times, is plural, and could refer to two, or three, or four, or five. It's simply plural. The idea then becomes, the point then becomes that we have no idea if it's two and a half, three and a half, four and a half. If the first one is times singular, the second one is times plural, and the third one's half a time, uh, we don't really know what it refers to. Later on, in Daniel chapter 12, we have reference to 1290 days. But the book of Revelation will specifically now refer to this time frame as 42 months and 1260 days. 
So that seems to indicate that John understood Daniel's time frame as referencing three and a half years. 1,260 days is 42 uh, months on a, of a Jewish calendar of 30 days in each month. Most significantly for our purposes is the realization that this designation of time indicated a period of time during which God's people suffer. It's interesting to note that it appears that, that the case that Jesus' ministry lasted three and a half years. It's perhaps important also to note that the time frame likely comes from Daniel chapter 9 as well. In Daniel chapter 9, there were 70 weeks of years. And it appears that what we're looking at here with the three and a half years is that the last part of that 70th week, or that 70th seven. Now, John goes on to note that I will give authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. My two witnesses, of course, the divine passive that I will give indicates that God is sovereignly uh, overseeing them and in control of them. Now, likely, the two witnesses represents the confessing church, the believers throughout all of history. And some of you might go, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. They're actually referred to as two witnesses. And uh, by the way, I deal with this at great length in my book, Revelation and the Two Witnesses. But let me some, simply summarize some of the key points here. First off, Whenever you see numbers in the book of Revelation, the first question that we must ask is, what is the significance of this number? The number two, of course, is derived from the Old Testament law that required two witnesses to establish uh, any credible legal testimony against the world, most notably De Deuteronomy 17, verse 6, and Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. So perhaps there's two witnesses because the point of it is that their testimony is true. What they're saying is trustworthy. We see this also in the Gospels, where Jesus sends the disciples out uh, in pairs, uh, two by two. Now, and adding to that, the fact that the word witness is a reference to the God's people. We are the lampstands. We are the light of the world. Our, our job is to be faithful witnesses, just like Jesus was faithful witnesses. We might also note that the two witnesses are referred to as two olive trees and the two lampstands. Now, lampstands, we already know, refers to churches. Though this leads some to conclude that John's depicting two witnesses because they represent two of the seven churches, or a portion of the Christian church, it's probably best to understand the fact that they're two simply because their testimony is true. Now, the key Old Testament context for the two witnesses is the book of Zechariah. In Zechariah chapter 4, it says, The angel, verse 1, who was speaking with me returned, and he roused me as a man who was awakened from his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? And I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand, all of gold, with its bowl on the top of it, and its seven lamps on it, with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps, which are on the top of it. And I also see two lamps, uh, two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl, and the other on the left side. Then I answered and said to the angel who was speaking with me, saying, Well, what are these, my lord? So the angel who was speaking with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my lord. And he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to, to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So in the book of Zechariah, then, we have a lampstand, although it's only one lampstand, that is empowered by the olive trees. The, the oil from the olive trees then provides the oil for the lamps itself. But in Zechariah, we have two olive trees and only one lampstand. In Revelation, we have two olive trees and two lampstands. Again, why would John uh, change or transition what it says in the book of, uh, of Zechariah? And the answer is because for John, the number two is prophetic witness and the trustworthiness of their witness. It's important for John to note that there are two lampstands. The fact that there's two olive trees just confirms for us that we have reference to the book of Zechariah. And in Zechariah, we have this understanding of the king and the priest. 
uh, and and of course in the book of Revelation we have reference to the fact that the people of God are referred to as both kings and priests. Now again, another key thing to, to pay attention to is the fact that in the book of Zechariah, it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Some people will often make note of the fact that the book of Revelation seems to give little to no place at all to the refer of reference to the Holy Spirit. But perhaps we might conclude that the Holy Spirit is lying in the background, uh, undergirding everything in the book of Revelation. For we know that the prophetic witness of, the of God's two witnesses is only empowered. They're only capable of doing what they do because it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. The significance of Zechariah then for the background of the book of Revelation is indeed significant. Now, these two witnesses are uh, described as having power to accompany their, their ministry. And that prophetic power seems to parallel the prophetic ministries of Moses and Elijah. It says in particular that they have the power to shut the sky so that rain may not fall, which reminds us of the, of the ministry of Elijah in 1 Kings 17. Water, they can turn the water into blood, reminds us of Moses and the Exodus plagues. And they can strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. So many have speculated all kinds of different ideas as to who these two witnesses are. They're Peter and Paul, they're Moses and Elijah, uh, and the list goes on and on and on. But very likely, the two witnesses are simply modeled on the prophetic ministries of Moses and Elijah. Moses, of course, represents the Old Testament prophetic witness of the law, and Elijah represents the Old Testament prophetic witness of the prophets. Now, in the Jewish world, the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, was often divided as a twofold, uh, uh, with a twofold designation, the law and the prophets. Moses represents the law, Elijah represents the prophets. Therefore, these two witnesses are fulfilling the prophetic ministries of Moses and Elijah, or maybe better yet said, they're fulfilling the prophetic ministries of God's people in the Old Testament, what God had commissioned the people of Israel to do. The people of Israel failed. Only Jesus was successful. Jesus himself accomplished the role of Israel and is indeed the light of the world. Through Christ and through faith in Christ, we too then are empowered as the light of the world. And these two witnesses are then carrying forth the prophetic ministry of the Old Testament people. Now it says, however, that if anyone wants to harm them, fire comes out of their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who, must, who wants to harm them, in this manner they must be killed. This is going to reiterate for us a principle that we're going to see now in the next several chapters. And that's the principle of a fit punishment. Lex talionis. Uh, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. If you desire to harm them, that in whatever way you desire to harm them, in this manner you must be killed. These two witnesses are under God's divine protection. They cannot be harmed uh, in terms of death, at least, until they have finished their testimony. Now, another thing about the two witnesses, by the way, is the fact that they are never described as actually as individuals. Every description of the two witnesses is corporate. They have power to do this. They have power to do that. They are never described as two individual men. In fact, it says that after they've been killed, it says their body, verse 8, will lie in the street of the great city. Now, most translations says their dead bodies as my New American Standard does. But the Greek is actually very clear. It's their dead body. They're singular. They're, they're, an ent they're, they're a collective entity, never described as two individual persons, which again also would confirm the notion that these two witnesses represent the entire witness of the Christian church from the, from the baptism and resurrection of Jesus, or maybe you can say from the coming of the Spirit of Pentecost until the time of Jesus' return. Now, after they're killed, it says, or let me go back. It says in chapter 11, verse 7, which I think is going to be our key verse for the next several chapters in our study. It says that after they finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. Now, what's interesting is the fact that it says the beast. 
And in the Greek, it says the beast. The problem with that is, is we don't have any beast referred to prior and prior to this point in time in the book of Revelation. The beast seems to indicate, you know, the one I already told you about, the, or the one that you know about. But John hasn't told us about any other beast. This is the first time the word beast occurs in the book of Revelation. Perhaps then, the beast is a reference to the book of Daniel. You know, the one that Daniel told us about. This will fit well with what we're going to describe when we get to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13, John seems to give a, a much fuller description of the beast. In fact, we're told that there are two beasts. And the description of the beast in Revelation chapter 13 is going to conform directly and closely with the beast referred to us in Daniel chapter 7. So perhaps the beast here means the one that Daniel told us about. Well, whoever or whatever this beast is, we certainly don't know at this point in time. He comes up out of the abyss, which as we described is a place of hell or suffering, a place where there's uh, flames perhaps, as smoke comes up out of the abyss. And he's going to make war with the saints and overcome them. So we must also know, here's our first introduction to the idea, that the book of Revelation is also describing holy war. Now, I'm going to make a great argument that the book of Revelation is a love story. It's not a description of judgment and violence and wrath and all these things that we commonly associate it with. It instead is a love story. After all, the biblical story is a love story. And if the book of Revelation is part of the biblical story, then it makes sense that the book of Revelation is also a love story. And someone will say, but Rob, you clearly don't know the book of Revelation very well. After all, it's, it's got war and violence and all these nasty things of judgment and, and, and despair. And, and that, that's what Revelation is about. But I will contend that no, it's not about that. It's about God's love story. How is God going to redeem the nations? And he redeems them through love, not wrath. Now, we already noted in our last couple chapters that those who were killed by the plagues and who were not killed by the plagues in Revelation chapter 9 did not repent. Judgment does not bring the nations to repentance. So what does bring the nations to repentance? Well, it's love. But at this point in time, someone might rightly note that Revelation clearly describes war. The Battle of Armageddon is clearly a war. But here's the important thing to note, and we'll pick this back up later on as we go into more detail. The war in the book of Revelation is always the war that the devil wages against God's people. We're going to find out that this beast wages war against the two witnesses. If the two witnesses represent God's people in totality, they're, they're lampstands after all, so we know that they're at least collectively referring to at least two churches, if not all of Christendom. Uh, if the beast makes war against God's two witnesses, in chapter 13 we're going to find out that the beast is empowered by the dragon. The devil is the one who's masterminding the war against God's people. So the first thing to note is that warfare in the book of Revelation is the warfare that the devil wages against God's people. God's people, however, wage war back and respond back to the devil, not by fighting with arms and weapons and military might, but by sacrificially dying. So again, even though we have this imagery of warfare, and Revelation can well be described as a warfare text, or a holy warfare text, we should not read it to conclude that it's about blood and violence and vengeance and wrath and military prowess and power. Instead, it's about love. It's about love and submission. So, Right now, at this point in time, Revelation 11, 7, all we know is the two witnesses uh, are going to be killed. Now, it's important to note that they're not going to be killed until after they have finished their testimony. So if we go back to verses 1 and 2, the, the people of God are divinely protected. Uh, those under the altar and those who worship in the temple are measured by God and divinely protected. But the outer court will be trampled on for, for 42 months by the nations. And if the outer court refers to our flesh, or our, our physical being, it seems to make sense with what we're seeing. And that is, we are empowered by God 
through the power of the Holy Spirit, to be his prophetic witnesses. We do so for 42 months and for the duration of our, of our ministry. And we will not and cannot be killed until after we have finished our testimony. Now, we might die tomorrow because that might be the day that I finish my testimony. Someone else might live for 20 more years because that's how long it's going to take them to finish their testimony. However, at the end, the beast will kill God's people. Their dead body will lie in the street of the great city, which is mystically called Sodom and Egypt, where also the Lord was crucified. And everyone from around the world is going to rejoice over the killing of the two witnesses. And they're even going to send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Then it says in verse 11, And after three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who were beholding them. Three and a half days later, the people of God rise from the dead just as Jesus rose from the dead. Note again the parallels between the people of God and Jesus. As we said earlier, Jesus is the model for God's people to follow. Uh, the, the two witnesses are killed and uh, in the same place where their Lord was also crucified, which is spiritually or mystically or figuratively called Sodom and Egypt. Now, perhaps it's a reference to Egypt because that's where God's people are persecuted and enslaved. Perhaps it's a reference to Sodom because it's devoted to evil and destined for destruction. But nonetheless, the two witnesses are, are, their death is associated with the death of Christ. In addition, they're also resurrected just like Christ. After three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them and they stood on their feet. They're, they're going to be resurrected. They're going to be vindicated. The breath of life entering, entering into them, by the way, is the same language used in the book of Ezekiel chapter 37. Can these dry bones live? Now remember the dry bones in Ezekiel 37 represent the whole house of Israel. Ezekiel chapter 37 verse 4 says, Again he said to me, Prophesy over these bones, and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you, that you may come to life and live. The breath coming into the, the dry bones, resurrecting the whole house of Israel in Ezekiel 37, reminds of course of the book of Genesis chapter 2, where God gave Adam the breath of life, and he became a living being. Revelation chapter 11, verse 12 then says, that After they were resurrected, they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up into heaven in the cloud, and their enemies beheld them. And in that, that hour there was a great earthquake. A tenth of the city fell, and seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake. And the rest were terrified, and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe was passed. Behold, the third woe was coming quickly. The resurrection of God's people then results in a great earthquake. That earthquake kills uh, 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 a tenth of the city falls, and 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, which is a reversal of the remnant imagery in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, a tenth was spared. Now only a tenth is destroyed. 7,000 represents the number of those who were spared in the Old Testament, and now represents here the number of those who died. Oddly, the, the faithless majority are, spare, are, are spared, but why? Well, it says that they were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Uh, the, the idea of fear or being terrified in the book of Revelation always has positive connotations in Revelation. It expresses the worship which the Creator has the right to expect from all of His creatures. All of His creatures, fear in Revelation has an Old Testament fear the Lord connotation. It means proper reverence or proper worship of God. The Old Testament speaks favorably of those who fear the Lord, and it contains many commands to fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully. The prophets indeed look time, look forward to a time when the pagan nations would fear God. If this is the case, and it says the rest, the, the hoi lapoi in Greek, the rest who, did, uh, uh, who were spared from this were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now note in chapter, 20, chapter 9, verse 20, the rest 
still do not repent. In chapter 9, after this series of seven trumpets, or the first six trumpets at least, those who were not killed did not repent. But now, after the persecution or the faithful witness of God's people that results in their persecution and suffering and death, and then their subsequent resurrection, now the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Perhaps this is the, the key nugget to the book of Revelation. And that is, wrath does not bring repentance, but the faithful, loving, sacrificial witness of God's people and their subsequent resurrection does. The nations are repenting. The nations are, are, are glorifying the God of heaven. We'll note that the key element in the book of Revelation, uh, in, the new, in the New Jerusalem, in chapters 21 and 22, is not simply that God's presence is restored among us, but that God's presence is restored among the nations. And the nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will be in their glory and honor into it. So John seems to interpret the book of Daniel then, and we'll see this more as we proceed a little bit further, by noting that the shattering of the power of the holy people and the giving over the holy place to be trampled, Daniel chapter 8, verse 13, what appears to be the defeat of the saints by the beast in Daniel chapter 7, is simply the means through which the nations are converted. Instead of delivering his people from death, God allows them to be killed so that the nations will be converted. Revelation chapter 11, then verse 15 says, And then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he'll reign forever and ever. Note that after God's people are resurrected and the nations apparently repent, that's when the end comes. Not now. How long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? Ah, a little while longer. Until the number of your brothers and fellow servants who are to be killed, even as you have been, have been completed. Revelation chapter 11 describes the completion of the death of God's people. But that the death of God's people results in the conversion of the nations. And the result of that is, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Verse 16, they finish up this chapter, says the 24 elders who sat on the thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, who are and who were the Holy One, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were enraged, and your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and to give their reward to the bondservants, the prophets, and to the saints, and to those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple, and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. The seventh trumpet is clearly the second coming of Christ. This is the end. Uh, this is what we've been waiting for. The, what was promised in chapter 10, verses 6 and 7, there will be no more delay. Uh, the, the days of the voice of the seventh angel when he's about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished. The seventh angel sounds, now in chapter 11, verse 15 and following, and it's the end. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord, and of his Christ. Note that God is now described as the one who is and the one who was. There's no more the one who is to come. He's simply the one who is and the one who was. It's a time to reward the prophets, the saints, and those who revere your name. This is the answer to, God's, to, uh, to the prayers of all the saints. But it's also time to destroy those who destroy the earth. The, the destroyers of the earth are the powers of evil, the dragon, the beast, and the harlot Babylon. The heart of Babylon in chapter 19, verse 2, is said to have corrupted or destroyed the earth with their fornication. The, passage, the chapter then ends in verse 19, where the temple of God which is in heaven was opened. And the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. There were flashes flash of lightning, sounds, peals of thunder, and an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. 
Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.